Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you today. Um, this morning, we're continuing in our series on the book of Hebrews, and I wanted to start things off today by digging into a word that we can use to frame one thing that we need to know about who Jesus is in our passage this morning. And that question, that word, uh, is what exactly is a mediator? That's the That was a weird way of starting it, but what I'm getting at is this word mediator. What is that role? What does that word mean? When have you heard it before? You can actually pause for a second and think about that. Where have you come across the word mediator in your own story? I imagine that for most of us, the only time we typically come across the word mediator is in the context of, say, a conflict resolution seminar at our job or Maybe in marriage counseling, in our state, in Maryland, uh, mediation is one of the, I believe, mandatory steps in a divorce process. And so maybe that's a place that, that we've run into this word before. But I would, I would note that both of these are examples that I think reveal that we tend to think of mediation as something most like a negotiation or a situation where the, there are these two parties who are struggling to agree on something or to talk to one another about something, and a mediator is somebody who helps them bridge that divide between them. But of course, you know me, I'm the former English teacher, and so you know I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into this word. And I can, because the word mediation actually does stretch a lot further than just a kind of negotiation. The word mediation is rooted in the word media, as in the stuff that we consume all the time on television, on our phones, and which is, at least in theory, supposed to be this bridge between us and the world outside of our own lives. That's theoretically why we read the news, why we engage with media, to experience something beyond ourselves. And that actually is notable because it, it shares this concept with another word that's rooted in media, which is a medium, as in like a spirit medium, or somebody who claims to be able to bridge the world of the living with the world of the dead. All that to say that mediation, mediation isn't only what happens when two parties who can't get along need to be reconnected. It's also about connecting people who live in totally different worlds or even in different planes of existence. And it's about connecting them back with one another. Mediators are the agents of that connection, which is to say that mediators are the ones who bridge over what can sometimes seem like uncrossable gaps. This matters for us today because as we continue in our discussion of how the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus exceeds the rules and the rituals and the roles of the old covenant that was established through Moses in, in Israel's history, we've arrived at this moment of comparison between Jesus and the most central and also the most enigmatic mediators of Jewish religion the high priests of the temple. At 
The beginning of chapter 5 in the book of Hebrews, the anonymous author of the book lays out just what it is that a high priest in ancient Israel does, which is to say exactly how it is that a high priest mediates. And here she writes this. They write, Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. There are two particular things that we can note here about what makes a high priest successful as a mediator. We're going to use these to frame our discussion here for the rest of the morning, but the first of these two points is actually going to take a bigger chunk of time because, well, it's also the most complicated. And that first thing that a high priest does to mediate is they offer sacrifice for sin. They offer sacrifice for sin. In truth, this is the essence of their responsibility as mediators. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves this morning, it's a pretty strange thing to think about. After all, sin sacrifices aren't something we really see very often in our world anymore. But whether we realize it or not, there's actually a reason for that. There's a reason why we don't see them very often anymore, which goes beyond just that times they are a change in. So let's explain what this is about here for a second. Let's do our best to try and understand what the, the responsibility to offer sacrifice for sin entails. An idea central to the ancient Israelites' way of life was a certainty, a deep cultural certainty, that this enormous rift has been opened up between the God who created the world and the human beings he created to have dominion over it. And the fault of this rift, the, the scriptures teach, is with us. And the idea is that although all of us back then, even now, all of us feel drawn deep within ourselves to a life of love and a life of generosity and a life of worship, something that resonates, there's something in us that resonates with those things, that instinct, that desire for resonance is at war in us with another desire. And that other desire is one for control and one for independence and self-interest. And although God, in his kindness, once gave the prophet Moses long, long ago the law to clarify the best way to live for all those who want to return to the will of their creator over that chasm, the truth is that that law, which is this bridge between God and us, is simply beyond our ability to live with 100% of the time. Which means that if the law is that bridge over the gap between the Israelites and their God, it's a bridge that is too difficult and too narrow a path for any of us to manage to walk it on our own. 
if any of you know me well, you know that, uh, that one of the most important things about my life in a lot of ways is that I am a diehard walker. I walk everywhere. I walk on breaks. I walk for fun. I walk to listen to podcasts. I walk to get where I'm going. By far the hardest thing about being uh, here in my house with the coronavirus over the last week or so um, has been that it's taken away my ability to walk. Um, and when I'm out of here, one of my things I'm most excited to do, especially with the weather being a little nicer these days, is to start walking back to work downtown. And when I do that, when I walk from my house over on South Forest Drive to downtown Annapolis, the, the route that I take is one that is, requires me at some point or another to cross over Spa Creek. And the best way to do that, if you're a pedestrian, is to use this little bridge that's over near the Chesapeake Children's Museum. It's a very weird little bridge. And it's a perfectly fine way to go, but if you're ever making the same route that I, that I, that I make when I walk to and from Annapolis, you'll notice that on that route, just a little bit before you get to the Chesapeake Children's Museum, there is another point of temptation when it comes to ways to cross over Spa Creek. You'll notice if you ever make this walk that along the way to the museum, there is a drainage pipe that uh, stretches over the creek. It's probably about 100 feet long. And if, if you crossed it, you'd probably save five or six minutes off the walk. And it's, it can't be more than a nine or a 10 inch pipe. Like it's, it's not particularly big. But at the same time, it's big enough that literally every time I make this walk and I see that 100-foot drainage pipe crossing over the creek, I think to myself, I could walk on that pipe. My balance isn't great, but, but I think I could do it. I think this literally every time. But here's the thing. That pipe, that pipe over Spa Creek, that is the Israelites' law. Does it cross the gap? Yeah, it does. But in truth, can I make it the whole hundred feet on that pipe standing, even on my best day? I don't think so. I can make it some of the way, but I don't think I'm going to get all the way across. So all of that means that in the religion of ancient Judaism, there exists a need to restore the relationship between people and God when people inevitably fall short of the law. There needs to be mediation over this gap, over this metaphorical creek between us, and that means that somewhere in the middle there needs to be a mediator. And this is where the high priests come in. According to, according to Jewish law, when somebody sinned against God, against their neighbor, against their spouse. They had to bring something costly to them, uh, like a portion of their harvest or an animal from their flock. And they had to bring that costly thing and give it to the priests so that the priests could sacrifice that thing on their behalf. It was important that in their culture, the Israelites couldn't do this on their own. They couldn't make the sacrifice themselves because, remember, they've fallen off that pipe, right? And so a priest's job was to do the sacrifice 
for them. And this act was called atonement. And it was the first big job that priests in Israel had. They offered sacrifices of atonement for the sins of the people. And to be sure, this was messy and this was bloody work. But the point of the ritual was that falling off of that pipe comes at a cost to people. And by allowing the priest to mediate the payment or that cost, it gave a person uh, an ability to kind of get back up on that metaphorical, that metaphorical pipe and to try and cross again. But that was only one part of the responsibilities of the priesthood. There was another job too. And we see that in verse 2 where the author writes, He, the priest, is also able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. So the question is, do you see what that means? Because what it means is that if we go back to that metaphor of the bridge or the pipe or even of the spirit medium from back at the beginning of the message, the priest is on your side of the gap. The priest is on your side of the gap. It is critical to the understanding of the priesthood, of the Levitical priesthood in the law of Israel, that the priests are from the people, that they are like the people. Although they have this critical role to play in offering sacrifices of atonement, they don't do the atoning because bridge repair is actually God's work. But the priest prays for that work to be done, and he can do this because he listens and empathizes with the people. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it in this verse, where he or she writes that the priest is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. The priest's first personality trait, if you want to think of it that way, is gentleness towards others. It's sympathetic kindness. And part of that is because we are all not just one, but both of those things. We are all ignorant, meaning that there are things we simply do not know, even though we need to. And we are also all wayward, meaning that of our own volition, we step off the path from time to time. Maybe we step off it a lot of the time. Maybe we step off it for a long time. But the priests show us God's love for us by treating us gently on God's behalf because they are one of us. They're ignorant and wayward too. And that means they can empathize with us and our weakness. I don't want to draw this point out too much with an illustration because I'm aware that this is a role that I'm responsible for playing in our church community too. You all expect me to be gentle and to be sympathetic. But I wonder... 
I wonder if you also expect me to be ignorant. I wonder if you expect me to be wayward. I wonder if we see weakness as a universal language between us, as people, none of whom can make it across the bridge that the law builds on our own. I really hope, I really hope that I don't ever let you down as the pastor of this church. I don't want to let you down as the pastor of this church. But I also hope that you don't equate that with never making mistakes. Because what a priest leads in isn't righteousness. A priest doesn't lead in righteousness. A priest leads in confession. It's weakness. And the hope that God is going to use that weakness, my weakness, your weakness, to show his own strength. In any case, this is the second job of the priest, and it's the co-equal part of what priests as mediators are responsible for doing. They are to empathize with the people. So, here's the, the crux of the problem then for each and every person who ever held the, the position of high priest in ancient Israel. If mediation is something requiring both the righteousness that you need in order to stand in for people and also the relatability that you need to empathize with people. How can anyone ever be both of those things at the same time? And the answer, as this verse from Hebrews points out, is that they couldn't. They couldn't. And this is why the author of Hebrews writes that it is because of the priest's empathy, his relatable weakness, that the priest in verse 3 must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. Which, which means that the mediation of the priest is always an imperfect mediation. Because the priest has to go back again and again, year after year, in order to atone for his own sins. And then, although he is this faulty instrument who's standing on the wrong side of that gap, make a provisional atonement for other people's sins. In ancient Israel, there's no end to this rhythm to this cycle, the ritual of atoning for the priests who would then atone for the people and then atone for themselves and atone for the people. This rhythm defined religious life among the Israelites. And so here we all are, Jew and Gentile alike, having fallen off the near side of a bridge, of a pipe, of whatever, and right next to us is somebody who's a lot like us, but who has flaws like us, and who can intercede with God on our behalf in such a way that we get another try at things, which is great. It's a bit like having an extra life in a video game, if that's not too heretical of an illustration. 
But because the priest is on your side of the gap, you're never actually getting any help getting across the gap. You just keep getting a new shot at the bridge, at the pipe, and you can't quite make it. And then you get another shot and you can't quite make it. And you get another shot and you can't quite make it. And this is the ritual. This is the sacrificial system of the high priesthood in Israel. This is what passes in this time for mediation. It's what passes for a connection to the outside world, for talking to the dead. And it's not good enough. Which is why Jesus is so important to the author of Hebrews. And to not just those who follow him in the early church, and not just those who heard about him and admired his teachings, but it's why Jesus is so important to the entirety of the Jewish world, to the entirety of the entire world. Because at the root of who Jesus is, is this idea that Jesus has found a way to be a better mediator. He's found a way to be a perfect priest. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes later in chapter 7. Here she writes, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus blows everyone's mind. Jesus shakes the bedrock of first century Judaism for one reason and one reason only, and it is because he rises from the dead. And if death is the consequence of sin, of failing to cross that gap, then resurrection must be the ultimate proof that Jesus was able to make it, that he was able to walk that pipe, to cross that bridge, and to be entirely unstained by shortcomings or failures. And just knowing that someone lived who crossed the bridge would be miracle enough. But there's more. Because on the cross and elsewhere, before his journey was complete, Jesus kept telling people something really weird. He kept telling them that he would make intercession for them with God. You might remember that he tells the thief that's hanging next to him 
in execution on the cross, that that man is going to join him in paradise that very day. Which means that as people reflect back on Jesus after the resurrection, they realize not only does he cross the pipe, not only does his resurrection prove that he lived a sinless life, that death can't hold him down, but it also, they start to remember all these moments where he says he's going to make intercession and they realize he's setting himself up not just to be perfect, but to be a high priest. And now on the other side of the empty tomb, the author of Hebrews is trying to share this kind of million watt light bulb moment of realization with anybody who will listen, which is that Jesus of Nazareth is a sinless high priest. That Jesus of Nazareth has done both of the things. He's perfect enough to cross the gap and he's human enough to sympathize with us, to intercede for us in empathy when he gets there. And that would be enough to be perfect, to be a high priest. But it gets even better because the way Jesus proved all of this, the way he demonstrated his perfection was specifically through dying. And before he did that, before he died, even in his death, he kept telling people this other thing that didn't make sense then, but makes sense now. He kept saying, my death is for you, which means he's not just priest. He's not just perfect. He's also payment. He's payment. He's the sacrifice. And by laying his own life down willingly and then taking it up again, he becomes this payment that is never fully spent. He's a bottomless account. He's this sacrifice that is never wholly consumed on the altar. What he's done keeps happening, in other words, forever. And that means that no other sacrifice ever has to happen again. The altar's full. That's all super heady. I know. And it might seem in our age now where sin sacrifices sound totally crazy, like it couldn't have less to do with your life. But pause for a second and ponder something with me, if you will. Why do you think sin sacrifices have fallen so far out of style? After all, we did them as human beings for millennia. Why stop? And the answer is that it's in no small part because followers of Jesus stopped making them. Because what we believe makes them unnecessary. All of this is to say that when it comes to mediation, when it comes to connecting us with the God that our sin keeps us from, Jesus is a miracle. What Jesus has done is in all ways an unimaginable and an unexpected gift. And somehow that's the whole of it. It's a gift. 
as I've been prepping for this sermon this week, I've been thinking a lot about how little is asked of me when it comes to any of this. How little is asked of me when it comes to salvation. I think there's something to be said for those Israelite rituals of the past. And that something is that at least they were costly. To lose a portion of my crop once upon a time, to lose an animal that I need to live, those sacrifices would make a big difference in the life of a family in the ancient Near East. And those things, the crop, the animal, those things aren't equal to sin. But they sting. And the sting of them would remind me of my sin, would remind me of what's been forgiven. And the radical miracle of Christian faith really is that the damage that I've done in this world, the damage I've done to others, that I've done to the earth, the damage I've done to my relationship with God, all the damage that I've ever done was already nailed with Christ to the cross. A metaphor. It's not that Jesus beats me to the check at a restaurant and insists on paying it, grabbing it before I can say anything. It's that Jesus took care of the bill before I even placed my order, before I even came in, before he invited me, before I was born. And I don't know, when I think about that, sometimes I feel like that doesn't hurt me enough. I feel like salvation should still cost me something. If not an animal from my flock, then what? What can I bring? And so it's meaningful, I think, that the author of Hebrews tries to answer that question for us too. And what the author says is that I bring myself. I bring myself. No more than that. And no less than that. I bring me. In chapter 4, 14 through 16, they write, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With the bridge rebuilt, that narrow pipe over the creek transformed into a freeway, my job is to walk over it, is to walk over there. My job is to actually be restored in my relationship with God. And that's not nothing. And just because that's free doesn't make it easy. But it's also what the book of Hebrews is saying is the only step left. And as we contemplate that step and how free it is, 
I think the author here wants us to reflect on the toil of that system that came before, on the priesthood that Jesus eclipsed, on the work of it, on the memory of that work, on, a, on how all of it built this foundation of a system for us to one day be blown away by what God is here to do. I think it's that system that helps us understand that it is crazy that He loves us enough to make things right for us before we can say a single word. It's crazy. And the only question, the only question for me, for you, for us to wrestle with is this giant question and this tiny question and it's, can we believe it? Can we believe it? Can we believe it? I'll pray for us and we'll continue in worship. God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for, for being both things, for your perfection and yet the, the empathy of your love, your unbelievable commitment to knowing us, even in the midst of, of our failure, of loving us thousands of years before we have any right to, to lay claim to your love. God, your greatness is just simply more than we can understand. Your goodness, your mercy, and your love. God, I pray that you will help me to believe it and to keep believing it every day. I pray that everybody in our church will, will wrestle with just this one giant question. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? And God, I pray that as we wrestle with that question, you'll show up for us in ways that are unmissable and that through this church, you will transform the city. Thank you, God, for what you have done and continue to do and just for who you are, God. We love you. In your son's name, amen.